0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would. Let's turn to um, Matthew 27. Actually, no. Let's turn to John 18. John 18. We're dealing with one of the... Handful of episodes in the life of Christ that is recorded in all four Gospels. His first appearance before Pilate, episode 31. We're going to combine this uh, outline with his first or with his trial before Herod, that's episode 32, and then we'll return back to Pilate for episode 33. And all three of these events are being combined into a single outline um, study. We're still dealing with the first appearance before Pilate at this moment, so let's uh, get right to it. John chapter 18, we are in uh, main point 2. Pilate opened Jesus' trial with an inquiry into Jesus' kingship, his inquiry into Jesus' kingship. All the other stuff, it was religious matters between Christ and the Sanhedrin, Pilate didn't really care about. Uh, doesn't much concern, Pilate, between Pharisees and Sadducees and religious opinions and so forth, all of their jealousy over how many disciples he's accumulating and things of that nature. is no concern to Pilate in the slightest. But the claim of kingship, that becomes an issue that he has to address. Anything that would be a threat against the sovereignty of Rome, anything that would draw away uh, followers and, and stage a rebellion uh, would be a problem. And so this is what he focuses on. And we have this statement that's made in John 18:36, my kingdom is not of this world. So uh, you'll notice, let me back up just a minute. We'll open in prayer here. But verse 33, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? furiously anti-Semitic. We know this from the secular historical record, and we see the overtones of that in his very language here. He says, Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? (laughs) All right? What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is is not of this realm now there's a lot of doctrine in that verse i believe there's a lot of doctrine that's ignored today or not understood today in uh, certain circles of evangelical christianity perhaps that have a bad idea of what the kingdom is and they try to take their they try to assume a warrant uh, under kingdom principles to try to uh to try to uh, affect temporal life change and this verse doesn't speak to that in fact this verse speaks just to the opposite of that as it is, we don 't have servants that are fighting, servants that are um, trying to bring about temporal life changes uh, in this verse, in any event. so Pilate said to him, "So you're a king <laughs> right? that's already that he heard out of uh, out of that whole verse when Jesus said, "My kingdom, uh, so you're a king then right." <laughs> different aspects there all right well this is where we left it off we want to come back to it to understand uh how it is that this kingdom is not of this cosmos and uh, what is the present arrangement of this cosmos what is our uh, responsibility in this cosmos and uh and so forth so let's take a moment for silent prayer ask the father to bless our thinking uh shall we pray Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have to assemble together. Father, this is a a grace provision. It's a a blessing in the middle of the week to stop and and to have a a refuge, as it were, an oasis in the uh, midst of what happens from day to day throughout the week. Thank you for this time to to study the example of our Savior, the uh, example that he set for each one of us to imitate, the uh, opportunity that he had to, uh, to proclaim truth to the governing authorities. Father, such opportunities may be ours as well if we find ourselves persecuted, arrested, on trial, even uh, should the test come uh, where we might face uh, martyrdom. Father, if such uh, dark days are indeed ahead for us in our country, I pray that you would be equipping us even now to not be worked up over it, to be relaxed, to trust that uh, in that very hour it will be given to us what to say. That, Father, uh, an opportunity to proclaim truth to the governing powers is is uh, not always available. So we should redeem each opportunity when they are presented. So thank you for the example our Savior sets. I pray that we might become imitators, might understand the doctrine. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, again, as we are picking up this, we had point one originally. Pilate opened his court's. Okay. Interesting. It's not going to do this for me. Ah, there. Point one, Pilate opened his courts for the morning with a question for the religious leaders. Before he has any questions for the Lord, he actually has very pointed questions for uh, the religious leaders, the ones that were bringing him for trial. And uh, you can tell right off the bat that he's skeptical. He's dubious. What are you doing here? What's the guilt in this man? What's the charge? And they uh, don't really have a charge. They just say, well, he's an evildoer he wasn't an evildoer we wouldn't uh, be bringing them to you all right and that's not sufficient it's not sufficient for Pilate. not sufficient for roman law all right and even to our day and age uh, we have our our legal system that has its roots in roman law has its roots in british common law we understand that being held without charge is not is not part of our tradition all right if if you're going to be held there's going to be a charge and you're going to face trial on that charge different uh, aspects there we had other studies in fact Point one had subpoints C, D, and E uh, related to these things, which then took us to his question for Jesus, Are you a king? Are you a king? And this is where we are under main point two. So the, the uh, trial and the first question that he poses to our Savior is, Are you a king? Now it's interesting because there were other things in which Jesus would keep himself silent. There were uh, the, the charges, the accusations, the slander, all of that... Filth, he did not open his mouth. He remained absolutely silent, did not answer a single charge against him. And yet, here we have the affirmation of his kingship. And every time the question is put to him, are you a king, he does not remain silent. He agrees with the question that's asked. He says, it is as you say. It is as you say. Jesus affirmed his kingship, yet he refused to answer any accusations against him. And this, I think, is a pattern that we have to identify with in the sense of what is it that we're supposed to answer and what is it we're not supposed to answer. How do we make the application the Proverbs talks about where you answer a fool according to his folly and then the very next verse you don't answer the fool, lest you be seen as a, as a fool as well. All right. And so we have to recognize when, do, when is it time to be speak and when is it time to be silent. And what are the things that we cannot be silent about? Part of the uh, confession that we're supposed to make and, and, uh, certain aspects there. Now we know We have the uh, principle here that Jesus made the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. This episode is spoken of later. This episode is spoken of uh, in the pastoral epistles. Paul urges Timothy that he too has made a good confession. That Timothy has made a good confession in the presence of witnesses. And for Timothy's case, it was at the moment of his ordination, when the hands were laid upon him, that he was a pastor teacher. That was his life purpose, his ministry, his service. All right. The example of Pilate as well. Pilate made the good, con- or Jesus made the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. And this is what we're seeing here in this episode. And I think there's a significance there that we ought to consider and pray about for our own application in the sense of uh, what do we deny and what do we affirm when it is that perhaps we ourselves are going to be placed in a, in a uh, circumstance on trial like we see here. Are we going to deny that we're part of the body of Christ or are we going to affirm that we're part of the body of Christ? And um, you know, if these are things you've never thought of before, and, and I'll be honest, we've been so blessed and so protected in this country that it's not been an issue in times past, but what if it is an issue moving forward? What if naming the name of Christ has temporal consequences moving forward? Are you going to name the name of Christ or are you going to shrink back in shame? uh, that there's reward for for faithful testimony to your position in Christ. The Father's pedagogical reward that then comes. You confess Christ before men, the Father will confess you. All right? So we have it here. Point B, Jesus' present kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' present kingdom is not of this world, but of course, his future kingdom will be. And this is where we start to, uh, I think, get into the details here. Of John 18, 36. My kingdom is not of this world. Is not presently, now, of this world. Does that mean that it never will be? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say it it is not now and never will be. He just says it is not. It is not. Now, when we can relate this to other passages, we understand there is a future kingdom that's going to come that will be of this world. The future millennial kingdom of, of Jesus Christ will be of this world. The Davidic throne is a Davidic throne of this world. The promised land that Israel will occupy is promised land of this world. All right. But his present kingdom is not of this world. He has not yet been uh, crowned with a, with a, uh, and seated on the throne of David. That throne is still vacated. It's been vacated since Nebuchadnezzar vacated it in 587 B.C. And it was not receded when Ezra and Nehemiah led them back from captivity. Right? Zerubbabel was entitled to it, but he never claimed it. Zerubbabel ruled as a Persian governor, not a Davidic king. That's vital that we, that we identify with that, Jesus was the heir to that throne, he was entitled to it, he was the, the the direct lineage, eligible to sit on that throne, but he is not going to take that throne until God the Father provides it for him, all right it is still a vacant throne will stay vacant until second advent, so his present kingdom is not of this world, but of course his future kingdom will be and in I can't stress this enough. We want to understand the not yet, but still future fulfillment of Jesus' earthly kingdom. Don't fall. It's a fallacy to say that his statement here is normative for all time, that he will never have an earthly kingdom. Okay? And this is where often today's kingdom now uh, group goes wrong. All right? They go wrong because they say, see, he's a king. He's a king now. Yes, he's a king now. But understand what his kingdom will be like then at that second advent. All right? What's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and, uh, and the, the, the kingdom of Israel? Okay? That kingdom is coming. It's just not here yet. All right, the present kingdom. Now, the future kingdom will be. And I won't take you back there again because last week we spent a lot of time in Psalm 2. But you'll understand that is a millennial application in Psalm 2. Okay? And then Psalm 22. I don't think we got quite that far, did we? Psalm 22. Do we look at Psalm 22? Alright, let's go back there then. Psalm 22. His kingdom will be earthly. There are land grant uh, provisions. And that, and that land grant provision is on this earth. Alright, Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Is that an earthly setting? <laughs> okay. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Now, when's that going to take place? That's right. It's not here. It's not now. And trying to make it happen here and now, as uh, some, uh, some churches do, some denominations, some um uh, realms of theology, try to try to transform this world, try to bring in the kingdom through human effort. We want to hand the kingdom when Jesus gets here because we've, we've made it such a wonderful place. <laughs> All right? No. No, no, no. In any event, um, powerful uh, message that comes here in the midst of Psalm 22 where he speaks of the crucifixion, where he speaks of uh, what he has to go through in order to make this possible. And yet... He knows that, uh, that on the other side of the cross is going to come the uh, the crown is going to come the glory. Verses one through twenty one has to happen before verses twenty two and following can take place. So, we have it there now. Sub point one. Then he says, not of this cosmos, not of this cosmos, and then in a parallel phrase he says, not from this place. Not from this place. So point sub point one then in your notes. Not of this cosmos, Christ's kingdom must be entered by faith. Not of this cosmos. Christ's kingdom must be entered by faith. This is the kingdom of heaven as available today. Not of this cosmos. Christ's kingdom must be entered by faith. Alright. We connect this very well with what he's saying in John 18.36. It's what he's already stated back in John 3. It's the truth as we understand it related in the Apostle Paul's message in Colossians 1. So let's look at some of these. John 3.3 3 and Colossians 1.13. When, when you see the word kingdom, <laughs> realize there's a lot of things that are at work and you've got to be discerning as to what the application is. It's one of those. I think it's a, it's a. It's a. What might be a good way of saying it? A, a red flag word, a danger word. It's like the word "saved." The, the moment you see "saved," just stop right there, raise the big flag up, and resolve it, and say, "Wait a minute. Is this?" The first sense of saved, the second sense of saved, the third sense of saved? Is this my being saved from the penalty of sin and now I've received eternal life? Is this being saved from the power of sin and now I'm sanctified in my Christian walk? I'm walking in the lot, I'm in fellowship. Or is this being saved from the, uh, the presence of sin when I'm caught up to be with the Lord in glory? Uh, which, which aspect of saved is it? Or is it the fourth? Is it just simply I'm, I'm rescued from physical danger? All right, uh, which, which sense of saved am I looking at when I see that word? Well, do something very similar whenever you have the term kingdom. Whenever you have the term kingdom. And understand that there are distinctions to be found within the term kingdom. Specifically, are we talking about the kingdom of God? Are we talking about the kingdom of heaven? And there are places where those are used interchangeably. There are places where they're not used interchangeably. Are we talking about the Davidic kingdom? They're not the same. What is our kingdom? All right? And and then once you start answering these questions as far as what is meant by the term kingdom, start to ask yourself now, what is my position in that kingdom? Am I a citizen? Or am am I the king? Or am I the queen? Okay, I'm the bride of Christ. If he is the king and I'm in Christ as his bride, what is my position in the kingdom? Am I a citizen of the kingdom that is trying to gain entrance into the kingdom? Just like we ask, uh, am I invited to the wedding supper? Or am I issuing the invitations? All of these things are matters, uh, I think, that are critical matters that sometimes are, are muddied. Sometimes they're they're, uh, they're uh, just all lumped into the same thing. And we say, well, um, the kingdom is just being saved. If, you, if, you're, if you're saved, you're in the kingdom. Wait a minute. Okay. In the kingdom in what way? In the, in the Davidic kingdom? Or the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven that's not yet on this earth? Why does it say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Thy kingdom come, because it's not here yet. Right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Because it's not here yet. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Presently, his will is done in heaven. A day is coming that will be done on earth. Okay? And is the Father's kingdom the same as the Son's kingdom? It's our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What's the Father's kingdom? Is it the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ? What's the Father's kingdom? Okay? Now, so I've given you, what, 14 questions, now I haven't answered any of them. I'm, I'm giving you things to think about, and we will start answering them one by one. Let's start here. Let's start with, my kingdom is not of this cosmos. Which kingdom is he talking about? Because the kingdom of Israel is from this cosmos, and it will be. But he is talking about a domain of light. Remember, Jesus Christ didn't come to judge the world but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ came so that we can be transferred from the domain of darkness, delivered into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That's the kingdom that's not of this cosmos. That's the kingdom available now. That's the kingdom you enter into when you get saved. So, not of this cosmos, nor from this place, Christ's kingdom must be entered into by faith. John 3.3 3. And this is something that even the teacher of Israel needed teaching on. Okay, A man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So many things you glean out of this. But the Pharisees are confessing Nicodemus' admission here when he says, we know testifies that, by and large, the Pharisees as a group had no question that the miracles Jesus performed were the divine credentials from God the Father, that he was a prophet. He was from his message. was coming from Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's undeniable, which makes their guilt that much more severe when they rejected him. So Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, one thing you need to do in some more advanced studies is understand is seeing the kingdom, the same as entering into the kingdom, okay? And some people try to get too clever by half and and draw distinctions. I I think it's actually equivalent phrase. Seeing it means you are entering into it, okay? In any event, if you are born again, you can enter the kingdom of God. And so uh, Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I don't understand a second birth thing, all right? Um, You know, how do you you emerge from a birth canal the second time? That's just not going to happen, obviously. Well, he says it's a spiritual birth, and we understand the contrast here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, the birth by water is the physical birth. The birth by spirit is the spiritual birth. These are the two births. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And there you have enter in parallel with C, right? You put verse 3, verse 5 in tandem. And to me, this resolves the debate, but some people try to draw a fine line there. All right. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Again, each one of these verses is putting the physical birth in, uh, in contrast with the spiritual birth. So do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And that second birth is going to be the one that's going to be described here as a spiritual birth. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. The wind. We're going to study this in our vocabulary for angelology. It is the the spirit. It is the same word for wind or spirit or breath. And the spiritual birth is like unto the wind. You can't see it, but you feel it when it hits you. (laughs) Right? And you're not sure where it's coming from or where it's going or... How it, you know, what causes it? There's a lot we don't, even to this day. Modern science and meteorology is trying to understand uh, air pressure and wind and all these other things. So this is the nature of the spiritual birth. Nicodemus then said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? How many Jews felt... That, uh, that they were good to go because they were ritually uh, on board with the program. That they were uh, ceremonially clean. They were, they were uh, leaders, as it were, and failed to understand salvation by grace through faith. Didn't understand the, uh, the new birth. This is not church age. This is stewardship of Israel where Christ is teaching this message. It's always been by grace through faith to be born again. All right. So, uh, entered into by faith. Colossians 1 in verse 13. The fact that you need to be born again. You need that second birth. <coughs> For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, how do we connect this? Because this is a kingdom. This is a kingdom that exists now. This is a kingdom that we've been delivered into already as a past completed action. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So when Jesus says, My kingdom is not from here. My kingdom is not of this cosmos. Is He talking about the kingdom of Israel under the Davidic throne? Or is He talking about the kingdom here that's in contrast to the domain of darkness? That's in contrast to Satan in his realm. That is, the Satan's the god of this age, we understand. Alright. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when you are saved, this is what happens. This is, this is described as a universal statement. He rescued us. This is Paul and Timothy, the authors of this book, talking to the believers in Colossae, every believer in the church age, every believer at any time, throughout any stewardship. The moment they receive eternal life by grace through faith, they're no longer in the cosmos kingdom of, of this present darkness. All right, this cosmos has been in that darkness since Adam relinquished it to Satan. And that's part of what we're studying in our in our angelology. We're going to we're going to show how that sovereignty is now presently Satan's for this fallen cosmos. All right. Now, (laughs) given that we are in this new kingdom what is our responsibility to this cosmos then? Should we be fighting? Should we be under arms? Should we be fighting to, to exalt Christ in this cosmos? All right. In other words, do we become militant about uh, what we're doing in temporal life because we are part of this spiritual kingdom? But Jesus said no. He said if my kingdom was of this cosmos, my servants would be fighting until now. My servants would be fine. He says, I can call legions of angels to rescue me here. It's not the purpose. That's not our role. All right. Now, there is, point two, a future earthly kingdom that is guaranteed by the literal promises to Abraham and David, as well as the prophetic messages through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, etc. If you really want to be comprehensive and 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 thorough, list every single prophet of the Old Testament. Alright? But this ought to be enough. Can God lie to David? Can He lie to Abraham? No. He can't lie to anybody. And these literal promises are important to understand. A future earthly kingdom is guaranteed by the literal promises to Abraham and David. To Abraham... Many passages we can look at, but let's limit it to Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17. To me, that one ends the argument when you, you're dealing with some replacement theology people or you're dealing with some uh, some spiritualizers, some allegorizers that uh, try to deny the literal promises to Abraham. Or the literal promises to David, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. The prophetic messages through Isaiah. How about Isaiah 9, verse 6 and verse 7? An earthly kingdom. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8. Ezekiel, how about Ezekiel 37, 21 through 28? An earthly kingdom that comes about on a national resurrection basis. Dry bones become a living being again in Jeremiah 30, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 37. How about Daniel? Daniel 2, verses 34, 35, and 44. There is a kingdom that will be on this earth. Now its origin is heavenly. It a stone cut without hands that's cast down to the earth and then fills the whole earth. So its origin is not earthly, but its reality will be earthly when it's manifest in the future. Likewise, Zechariah, Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 21. All right. Maybe I should have done every single prophet. Who did I leave out? I left out all the minor prophets except for uh, Zechariah. All right. Well, let's start with these. Genesis 13. Genesis 13. And you can add to this. Obviously, the Abrahamic covenant is found in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 22. You can find uh, the Abrahamic covenant restated to Isaac, restated to Jacob. Uh, Many places you can turn to to find the Abrahamic covenant. But. I like these verses in chapter 13 specifically because it's so explicit related to the earthly, uh, the the geographic setting for for this fulfillment. The geographic setting, the terrestrial setting, the earthly setting for this promise. Genesis 13, verses 14 through 17. Interestingly enough, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Okay, and I think this is there. There is a tremendous significance to this. This is this is on par with Judas Iscariot leaving the upper room, and the door closes, and Jesus says, "Now the kingdom of heaven." Right? Um, look at this. As soon as Lot had separated from him, the Lord says to Abram, "Now lift up your eyes and look from this place." You know, as if. There were only limited revelations that God permitted himself to make to Abraham until he separated from Lot. Abraham should have separated from Lot back in chapter 12 or chapter 11 when he said, leave your family and go to the land I will show you. Why did he take Lot with him? All right. Leave your family, leave your land, go to the land I will show you, I will make your name great. But he takes Lot with him. He actually takes his father with him as far as Haran. And then he leaves his father in Haran where he's going to die. Terah's going to die in Haran. And then he goes to Canaan with Sarah and Lot. But he left, he left Ur with Sarah, Terah, and Lot. But now, as soon as Lot's gone, the Lord said to Abram, Now, lift up your eyes and look from this place where you are. Was he on earth? <laughs> okay, Northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see... Was that earthly? I will give to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. I would submit that the very geography Abraham walked around on is what has been promised to him. And you cannot allegorize that. You cannot spiritualize that. You cannot replace that. You can't say, well, he's going to fulfill that in the church. Careful. He promised it to Abraham. He promised it to his earthly descendants, his dust of the earth descendants. Yes, there's stars of the heaven descendants as well. Both metaphors are employed. Abraham does have spiritual descendants within heavenly descendants. Context, But he has earthly descendants in an earthly context. And that's what we see here. The dust of the earth metaphor. And it's walking about its length and breadth in that very land. So Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And that land is his. That is his by promise. So a future earthly kingdom is guaranteed by the literal promises to Abraham and to David. Second Samuel seven verses twelve through sixteen. Second Samuel seven verses twelve through sixteen. Now the promise to Abraham does not include a throne or a king. It does have land and seed and blessing components to that promise. So Abraham has promised a land grant and physical descendants and spiritual descendants and blessings. But nothing spoken to Abraham says that those blessings have to be royal blessings or a, a a royal line. That's that was reserved for the promises now to David. Promises to David. And so, Second Samuel seven. And there's a context that precedes this, but. Um just keying in for today on verses 12 through 16. When your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers. All right. Where's David now? Is he on earth? All right. Where's he going to be buried? On earth? All right. I will raise up your descendant after you, your seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Is he talking about Solomon there? Or is he talking about Jesus there? Both. <laughs> okay. He shall build a house for my name. Who builds a house? Does Solomon build a house or does Jesus build a house? Both. Yeah. Solomon builds the temple. All right. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Is that Solomon or is that Jesus? Both. And I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Is that Solomon or is that Jesus? It's both. And when he commits iniquity... When he commits iniquity, I will correct him. Is that Solomon or is that Jesus? Solomon. Jesus does not commit any iniquity. All right. But now, when iniquity is imputed to his account, does the Father judge the Son? Yes, He does. Yes, He does. He was not guilty of it, but it was imputed to Him. And it was judged by God the Father. Alright. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. That's Solomon primarily. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. So this is David. David's house. David's kingdom. Is this God's kingdom? He says this is your kingdom, David. David. Your house, your kingdom, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Is that an earthly kingdom or a heavenly kingdom? Is it an earthly throne or a heavenly throne? Earthly. David never sat on a heavenly throne. David always sat on an earthly throne in an earthly kingdom. So the whole idea that, well, when Jesus ascended to heaven and took his seat at the Father's right hand, that that was the throne of David is probably the greatest tragic sadness that uh, uh, progressive dispensationalism ever foisted upon evangelical Christianity. It's heartbreaking that it's what Dallas Seminary teaches to this day, based on their uh, progressive dispensational um, approach. The right hand of God the Father in the third heaven is not the throne of David. never has been and never will be. Jesus has multiple royal warrants. He has the royal warrant of of Jewish royalty as the son of David, yes. But he also has human royalty as the son of man. He has divine royalty as the son of God. He has several royal warrants. And to try to just confuse them or equate them and lump them all together is uh, tragic. All right, so can God lie to David? No. Can he lie to Abraham? No. And those aren't competing messages either. They, they, they blend very well because Abra- David, of course, is Abrahamic. David is Jewish. His, it a, the, the, the specific lineage of the king of Israel does not change the, the, prom- the, the promises to all Israel that, that's, that are found in Abraham. Does that make sense? All right. Likewise, none of these subsequent messages through the prophets is going to alter what's understood in the promises to David or the promises to Abraham. All right, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. We have promises to the patriarchs, and we have prophetic messages through the prophets. And there's an awful lot of Scripture that has to be false if uh, replacement theology is true. There's an awful lot of Scripture that has to be false if the only kingdom the Bible talks about is this kingdom of uh, heaven that we enter into by faith. All right, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. We could add to this, of course, um, Isaiah 7, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Uh, but let's just pick up on 9 here. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Two statements, and both are true. Both born and given. In his, in his uh, humanity, he had a physical birth to the virgin in the, in the manger. And then, of course, in his pre existent glory as God the Son, he is given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. So this is a prophecy specifically of a future earthly kingdom given to us. Who are we in this context is the earthly nation of Israel. And the government, what government? The earthly nation of Israel's government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness and justice from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. All right. So who brings it about? Do we bring it about through our human effort? This verse says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. Show me where in the church age, give me a New Testament passage, in the church age where you and I, believer priests in the body of Christ, church age saints, where do we conquer on behalf of Yahweh Tzibayoth, the Lord of hosts? We don't. <laughs> we don't. Okay? We have no scriptural warrant to go conquer. Anything. The, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And he's already told us prophetically how he's going to do it, when he's going to do it. Eschatologically, it's going to be the, the 70th week of Daniel. It's going to be with a mighty arm and with wrath poured out. Disciplinary wrath upon his own people and uh, recompense wrath upon the Gentiles. All right, Jeremiah. Here's another prophet. Are these guys all wrong? <laughs> I don't think so. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. You see the uh, the Bible special Sunday night. Jeremiah was featured in it. Three of the five uh, episodes have now been released. and Episode 4 next week, and I'll conclude it on Easter Sunday with the fifth of the five parts. I've been enjoying it. I, I, you can pick a few nits and some things. They had Daniel inside Jerusalem when the city fell. That was ridiculous. Jeremiah was inside Jerusalem. They got that part right. But uh, Daniel and his three friends had actually been taken away in 605 B.C. They, they had already been in Babylon you know, for 18 years before uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. But they had Daniel and his friends carted away into captivity from that 587 destruction. And that's, that's the biggest factual error I've seen in the three episodes I've watched so far. Um, the ark seemed a little leaky to me. <laughs> you know, okay, I, I get that they're tossed around. I get that there's a flood and it's raining, but to me, the ark was pretty watertight. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, I wasn't expecting all the the driply, you know, the dripples of water coming through and, and that. And then Mrs. Noah was holding a kind of a young child. I believe uh, Shem and Japheth were adult sons at that point, and and uh, their wives were. I don't know who that young child was. Mrs. Noah was hugging in the ark, but. Um, so those, those are my only complaints about the, uh, that girl looked awful young to be hugged by Mrs. Noah in the ark. Uh, but beyond that, uh, I've, I've enjoyed the History Channel production. Jeremiah was featured in that, and uh, here we are in Jeremiah 23. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. And understand, this comes after a woe passage. Woe to the shepherds. (laughs) Okay? This is a verse that gets my attention. I'm a shepherd. I don't want woe. Uh, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Now, this has been applicable in a variety of different periods of Israel's history. Ultimately, the pinnacle of this will take place in uh, the life of Jesus Christ. And the, uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious leaders uh, are the shepherds of Israel that have the greatest con- uh, condemnation. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you <laughs> for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. If you don't tend them, I'm tending you. And that's uh, that's bad news. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. This is a second Advent promise ultimately. Okay. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend to them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified. You know, if, if the sheep are terrified of their shepherd, that's a problem. Nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. So there's context now. Behold, days are coming. What's the context? The regathering of the sheep by the good shepherd and the faithful shepherds that he will then appoint and the millennial blessings that are going to happen here. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Is that earthly? That's not heaven. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. It's going to be a reunited kingdom. Remember, Jeremiah's teaching while the northern kingdom doesn't even exist anymore. Assyria has already swept away the ten northern tribes. It's only the two southern tribes. Judah is the only kingdom remaining, as Jeremiah is prophesying. And yet, he mentions both Judah and Israel. And this is his name, by which he will be called Yahweh Tzitkinu, the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. You know, everything in the Old Testament, every Passover was commemorating God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was always, teach your children, this is why, you know, why is this day like different days? You know, why is this like different, you know, and, and everything was all back to the Exodus, back to Passover. And not anymore. Days are coming in the Millennial Kingdom when they will no longer say, As the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. Is this earthly? Mm -hmm. Because they've been driven to other earthly lands, they're going to be regathered back to their own soil. This land, this land here a future earthly kingdom guaranteed by the literal promises to Abraham and David, as well as the prophetic messages that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah all delivered. I mean, you really, really have to allegorize and ignore a whole lot of passages to accept this terrible, terrible false doctrine. Okay. Ezekiel 37 Do some dry bones. We can get the music going. We can all sing uh, "Dim Bones." Anyway, you can go to YouTube this afternoon and search for uh, uh, Ernie Haas and Signature Sound. uh, Their version of "Dry Bones" is kind of fun. "Dim Bones," "Dim Bones." I'm sorry. All right. Ezekiel 37 verses 21 through 28. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone. Okay, is this on earth? (laughs) You know, did, did the sons of Israel somehow leave planet earth and go? No, they've been on the earth. They've been scattered from their earthly nation to other earthly nations. And sons of Israel, by the way, these are the Jews. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land on the earth. And I will make them one nation in the land. So no more of that divided kingdom. Okay. And that, remember, now Ezekiel is even after Jeremiah. Ezekiel is now in captivity. There's no more Israel. There's no more Judah. The Assyrians swept away the northern ten tribes and the Babylonians took away the two southern tribes. There is no more Israel. There is no more Judah when Ezekiel's ministering as a captive. But all Israel will be saved. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. See, ever since the Jeroboam-Rehoboam split, they've had two kings. They've even had some heretic queens in there, all right? There will be one king for all of them, and they will no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. For they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. For a thousand years under the reign of Jesus Christ, Israel will remain the faithful nation on this earth. I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. It goes on, notice. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. When have they ever done that for more than, you know, a year or two? (laughs) Okay? You know, occasionally they'd have a revival and they'd have a good king, and then sure enough, here comes the next king, and then they're back in idolatry again. Well, that won't happen in the millennial kingdom, because they're going to have a king that doesn't die. They're going to have a king, a perfect king, Jesus Christ, for the entire thousand-year reign. And notice, uh, they will live, this, this is very remarkable, we we taught this years ago, but who was here in 2000 when we taught uh, Ezekiel? No, you weren't. No, no, no. I think Shirley Newton, you're the only one. How about that? Okay. Um, they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. Was that on earth? Thank you. In which your fathers lived. Do they live on earth? And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Now, wait a minute. How about my servant David will be king over them in verse 24, and now David, my servant, will be their prince forever, verse 25. How do you have my servant David the king and my servant David the prince? In back-to-back verses. Grab yourself an Ezekiel notebook and... (laughs) Figured out no you got the greater son of David is the king but this is one of the blessings that uh, a resurrected and glorified King David is going to have all right what do you do when you have all these kings that come back to life again <laughs> all right think about it in in, in terms of an earthly kingdom uh, Solomon gets to become king because David died And then Solomon's now king, and then he dies, and then Rehoboam gets to become king, and then he dies. Well, what happens if, say, Solomon's on the throne and David comes back to life? Is he King David again? Does Solomon lose his throne? Do you have two kings? What do you do? What do you do when you have 20 resurrected, glorified, believing kings of Judah? Good King Joash, or King Josiah, or King even King Manasseh, ugly during his reign, but saved at the end of his life they will all be resurrected, glorified, and present in the millennial kingdom. When Jesus Christ himself is seated on the throne, what are they going to do? I believe this verse is a huge clue. Princes, that's right. See, what can happen when you have an earthly king is he can have babies, he can have sons that, that are princes, and, and they can be given responsibilities, rule over that city, rule over that city, rule over that territory. Uh, they learn how to be king as they, as they serve their father. Until such time as he dies and then one of them becomes king. All right. Well, Jesus isn't going to be having babies in the millennial kingdom. So who are the princes going to be in the millennial kingdom for Israel? The other kings, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, all the believing kings of Judah. Resurrected, glorified and now functioning as royal princes. Royal princes like ex, you know, former kings, King Emeritus. Okay. we got a Pope Emeritus now. Uh, first time in hundreds of years we've had a, a living ex pope. But think about it: we have all these resurrected and glorified kings, and there will be. Uh, I think this verse here is a huge clue. David, my servant, will be their prince forever, and I will make a covenant of peace with them, and I will be. Ev- it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And it's made, it's possible to be made because he shed the blood of that covenant on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. He said, this cup is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. All right? He did more than just redeem humanity from sin. He also established the basis by which the nation of Israel will enter into their eternal covenant of peace. Multiple works are being achieved on that Friday. All right, it'll be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. A brand new temple getting built. And that's going to be described here in chapters 40 through 48. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Now keep in mind, this is very paterological. We don't even focus on that because it's Jesus Christ, God the Son, sitting on the throne, but he takes us to the Father. He's going to take Israel to the Father. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forever. All right. Earthly, earthly setting for all of these messages. Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. There's a great big statue. We've got the timetable, the prophetic timetable of Gentile history. This is the course of human history from the time that the Davidic throne is vacated to the time that the Davidic throne is reinstated. And it's called the times of the Gentiles in Luke 23. It is, it is the, the, the course of the cosmos Gentile history, starting with Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, and ending when the stone made without hands comes crashing to the earth and completely obliterates the Gentile dominions. So you have here... Uh, basically the history from 587 B.C. to today and on forward through the tribulation and to the second advent of Jesus Christ. So Daniel 2, uh, you're familiar with this chapter, I hope. If not, there's a Daniel notebook in the hallway. Um Verse 31, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor, standing in front of you, its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet, partly of iron, partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. So this is on the earth that this takes place. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed and all at the same time became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled heaven? No, filled the whole earth. It came from heaven as it did at smashing, but now it fills the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. And goes on to describe, you are the head of gold. But after you will arise another kingdom inferior to you. The the Persian kingdom that replaced the Babylonian kingdom was inferior in a number of different ways. The alliance of the Medes and the Persians. And then, done away with, replaced by Greece. A third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the whole earth. Actually has a greater geographical extent, is the bronze kingdom. And then the iron kingdom, kingdom number four. In the process here, and then this one doesn't get replaced by another metal. It actually gets uh, a non-metal. It gets clay uh, mixed in with it by the time you reach the feet here. Finally, down to verse forty-four. In the days of those kings, the God of Heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will be, it will uh, crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Okay. It's an eternal kingdom on this earth. Finally, Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14. (coughs) So my apologies to Hosea and Amos and Joel and the other minor prophets I didn't include on this slide. I suspect we could... Find uh, earthly kingdom promises in pretty much all of them. Maybe not. In any event, Zechariah 14. Uh, Goodness, read the whole chapter. Well, behold, a day is coming for the Lord. I've only got three minutes left. A day is coming for Yahweh when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. And that will take place on this earth to be to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, the, half the city exiled. Uh, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. This is Yahweh Tsevayoth. We don't march in this army. Not yet. In that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Is that on this earth? On this earth. That's why when He descends and we meet Him in the air, that's not fulfilling this yet. For this to be fulfilled, His feet have to land on the Mount of Olives. That's the mountain He launched from in in the ascensions. The mountain He returns to. And uh, the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move towards the north, half the mountain will move towards the south, and you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Ezel. Yes, you will flee. So God is faithful. He provides a way of escape. <laughs> and they were surrounded. Well, not anymore, right? Because He lands on the Mount of Olives and splits it. Now there's a, a way of escape. Now there's a valley. Hmm. Just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. Are those angels? Are those resurrected saints? Is that us? Okay. Now well, remember, Zechariah is not prophesying in an age where he can see the church. So we're still mystery at this point. Yes, there will be angels present. But yes, there will be royal family of God present as well. It goes on. Um, Verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. Is that on earth? (laughs) Yes, it's on earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. His name the only one. Uh, The land will be changed into a plain. And um, there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. And uh, no longer a plague. Uh, Verse 14, let's see. Verse 16, It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Every Gentile king has to appear in Jerusalem on the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there, uh, there will be no rain on them. If they skip their required appearance... Their rain is denied. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt, the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. All right. The earthly setting, we'll come back to this next week, So, we're pretty clear, okay, that we are in a heavenly kingdom presently, but there is coming a future earthly kingdom, and we're fine accepting both, right? We're fine accepting both. Next week, we'll combine the two. Next week, we're going to show that even though the prophesied earthly kingdom will be earthly, it still is going to require a spiritual birth to enter into it. It will require a spiritual birth to enter into it. Not so in the past. Israel had unbelievers in the past. But moving forward into the millennium, only believers will be permitted to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will personally execute every unbeliever that survives Armageddon. They will not enter sheep and goat judgment. The the goats are going to hell. The wilderness judgment of Israel. The rebels are going to hell. Only believers will enter into the millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ will personally execute every unbeliever that survives Armageddon at the close of the Great Tribulation. And we'll, we'll show you that next week. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. Thank you for the precious promises. We rejoice, Father, in how faithful you are. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.